VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, September the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. He'll be the gentleman you speak with when you pick up the phone and give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, to say the very least, it was a very troubling, heavy weekend. It certainly was. We'll get to all of the different f- facets of the hurricane, and, you know, we can only hope as well that you find a way to, look, if you're in the devastated parts of the province, it's going to be a long road ahead. We absolutely understand it. You know, sometimes on the Monday mornings in particular, try to ease into things, you know, because there are so many heavy issues that need to be discussed and are warranted for deep and comprehensive discussion. And hopefully you find a way to not only focus in on the the devastation left behind in the wake of Hurricane Fiona, but also find a way to take care of yourself. You know, whether it be a distraction for a minute, for a half hour, for an hour, in the form of a walk or music or some sports or whatever it is that allows you to have a little bit of free mind time, hopefully you can find a way to do that. And so into Fiona. You know, I I think it was worse than people anticipated. That much is for sure. And if you're someone like me on the east coast of the island, the storm was nothing to us, but we all are with you as we watch the pictures of the catastrophic damages left behind in so many communities. You know, and it's no need to focus in on one because the widespread damages have uprooted people's lives. And not to be hyperbolic, but some people's lives have changed forever. To see the images of the storm surge and however many homes and sheds and stages were swept into the raging sea was heartbreaking. It was terrifying. And we know that one woman has lost her life, a 73-year-old lady. Her home was washed into the ocean, and she was recovered yesterday afternoon, but she perished. And our condolences to not only her family and friends, but this will be one of those things where people in the larger community and in the region will feel it. You know, some of the, some of the damage you see left behind, whether it be in the stages in Burnt Islands or the homes in Port of Basque or the washouts that were really widespread across the most impacted parts of the island. The cleanup will take a while. So state of emergency, people are being evacuated. The federal government has approved uh, requests for some support. There's some 100 troops coming from the Canadian Armed Forces Reservists, I'm led to believe, from three different platoons. They're on their way. So there's big questions being asked. And so for folks, you know, sometimes you look at it and you see a home gone and the need to rebuild and to deal with those who have been... (sighs) away from their homes. Add to the fact that if we have some 30 homes that have been lost, which is extraordinary, it's devastating, there's also many more, maybe five or six times that, will prove to be inhabitable. You won't be able to move back into those homes. So what do we do? The outpouring of support is very real. You know, sometimes it takes some of these disasters for people to remind themselves what is important. So the province will, as it always does, come to people's aid. 
So there's been some large efforts made, for instance, at the Canadian Red Cross, and your donations to the Canadian Red Cross will be matched by the federal government. Some people are mocking that, so be it. The Salvation Army, of course. People have taken it upon themselves with some smaller personal initiatives. I heard one woman this morning establishing a Facebook group for things that have been lost, may be found on your property, whether it be toys or pictures, teddy bears, what have you, just in an effort to try to make those small steps to reunite you with things that are important. It's one of the things I did think about. Of course, on top of injuries and lives lost, and hundreds of thousands of people across Atlantic Canada without power, is some things just simply can't be replaced. The focus needs to be on the individuals. The focus needs to be on their communities. There will indeed be some politics played, and some people really do need to do some self-reflection and some soul-searching. While there was threads about the stories, the images, everything that's been lost, everything that's been destroyed, and some people take it upon themselves to hijack it with saying, well, so much for your carbon tax, it didn't spare you from the storm. Let's find a way to dial back some of these things. You know, and on the political front, there will be questions asked about political leadership, but it is required at these moments in time. And this is where people show their true colors. So we do know that we're at a point in politics that damned if you do, damned if you don't. So whether it be the prime minister canceling a trip or making, the way he, making his way here, and or the premier who was in Dublin and in Turkey and now making his way, I think he's already arrived back in the province, we can take those conversations on. But let's do ourselves, collectively, a favor by putting our focus exactly where it belongs, with those who have been impacted, those who are displaced, those who have lost everything, because it's widespread. It's hard to wrap your mind around. I was horrified and terrified at some of the things that we saw taking place, certainly on the southwest coast of the island. Still some people without power. Still some parts of the community that you're asked not to go because it remains too dangerous. So we'll rally together. We'll do what we can here. So for individuals or municipal leaders anywhere in the province wants to talk about what they're doing in their community, provide information updates for your residents, things to be mindful of, wary of, what you should be doing or should not be doing, where you should or not, should not be going, we can just share the information as it comes in. When it comes to things like donations what have you, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's real, that be careful with what you do, where you put your money. You know, there's already some big initiatives that have been undertaken by some different groups here. So in St. John's, for instance, if you're interested in helping by donating, not money, in this case it's men's and women's and children's clothing, from footwear all the way to, the, uh, to a hat, Dry goods, you can drop them off at Freightway Transportation at 27 Duffy Place here in the city. Or there's another address at uh, 1121 Camout Road, it's a fisheries organization. They're going to take it upon themselves to get your generous donation of whether it be women, men, or children's clothing, and or some dry goods, and they'll get it out to the impacted communities. That's going to be happening today. If you want to reach out and contact a lady named Susan Anthony, her number is 693 7142. But we do need to be careful with where we focus our donations because you know the you know the deal. Dealing with the reputable organizations that get the help on the ground where it's needed most, we're gonna have to focus in on that. It's hard to really know what to say when these types of disasters come to town, come to roost. So we're wishing everybody well as they try to put the place back together, to clean up. And for the families who have been displaced from their home and maybe never able to go back, or your home is gone, it's truly remarkable. And so we're with you, and we're going to do what we can to help you, whether it be in spreading the information or if we can be involved, you'd like to share your ideas about what you can and are planning to do 
in an effort to help the folks in these devastated communities, we can take the calls here today. Then you look at how these issues, uh, these storms, for instance, are forecasted and the conversations surrounding the forecast, whether or not people are willfully trying to stoke the, or fan the flames of fear, which is not the case, certainly on this program at this outlet. But then you talk about how the media covers the storms. And the different outlets do the very best they can. Some were outstanding over the weekend. And it just highlights the importance of regional or local independent media outlets, in this case, community newspaper. Big shout out and congratulations and thank you to the folks at Rec House Press. They're a small community newspaper on the west coast of the island. Their sharing of information was top notch. The images that they had to share just to paint a picture with just how brutal the conditions were. Bravo to Rec House Press. You know, it does extend or a broader conversation about just how important that is. You know, so many small town newspapers and community newspapers have been lost in the recent past. Now we all know the, inpo the inputs as to why that's been the case. But for those out there covering and trying to share the information and the images, as troubling as that may be, good job over the weekend. And once again, I want to highlight the Red House Press Group because I really did lean on their uh, Twitter account for the information they were able to share as boots on the ground. So the media coverage, we can take it on and whatever you want to say regarding that. But let's please see if we can put the focus where I truly do think it belongs. And that's with the, with the folks whose lives have been turned upside down. Also important to note that even if it's a, uh, an opportunity to talk about other issues of the day, the good, the bad, the ugly, we know, and I think I can make it a, a so-called apology on your behalf before you call the program this morning, we know in your heart and in your mind you're worried about what happened over the weekend. And we can still have a conversation about other issues of the day, so don't feel like you can't call on different matters beyond the impact of Fiona. Because even if you just want to offer your, your thoughts, your well wishes to the folks, and then take the conversation to another issue of the day, we can do that. Because we know that you care. Of course you do. People right across the country are seeing what's gone on here in Atlantic Canada. And remember, five of ten provinces were impacted by this particular storm. All four Atlantic Canadian provinces plus the province of Quebec. So, I mean, you see some of the numbers of the uh, power outages, for instance, and I know for some people that's, you know, a little bit down the list, but of course the effort to recover is going to require the systems being up and working and operating as they are supposed to. Just think about it. When they talk about customers who are without power, and I see certain numbers where there was, you know, upwards of three or 400,000 customers in Atlantic Canada without power for some stretch of time, and many people still don't have power. A customer is a home. So, for instance, in my case, that would be four people. So the numbers are truly staggering. Just uh, one second, I have a quick sip of coffee here. But I do want you to know that we can talk about issues as you see fit here today. Okay, we are going to have a conversation, for instance, with Yvette Coffey, the president of the Registered Nurses Union. You know, we've talked about the issues regarding shortages, what that's meant in emergency rooms and other clinics and hospitals, and the pressures that the registered nurses and other healthcare professionals are facing and the new contract they have, and just how many people are wanting to stay as a casual nurse versus take on a full-time permanent. Some of these signing bonuses, retention bonuses, and things that have been dangled, and for some, they say it's simply not enough. It never will be. So we'll talk with Ms. Coffey about what it's going to take to stabilize the nursing force here in the province. For instance, in Eastern Health, some 28% of the nurses working in Eastern Health are on the casual list, and they don't want to be full-time permanent for a variety of individual personal reasons. So, again, 
Let's have a look around at some of the issues as you see fit. And in the schools, got some concerning notes, and someone attached a story that came from the uh, province of British Columbia where a lady has filed a regulatory complaint to ensure that someone who is a qualified engineer with experience in the world of air ventilation to ensure that everything's being done in BC schools. Now we know that there was a sole source contract for ventilation units to be installed in every classroom in the school, in every classroom in the province. That's a good thing. But we now understand, and it's not just about COVID, it's about air quality. So for every public or private building, we're learning a lot about what air ventilation means for your overall health. So whether it be accommodations in the K-12 system, whether it be the story from Memorial University of William Sears, who a professor based on her own mysticism refused to accommodate this person who was hard of hearing, wouldn't wear the FN transmitting unit. Whatever you want to talk about, we can absolutely do it here on the program today. And most notably, for those of you who are community leaders or individuals in parts of the province that have been pummeled, if you want to share information or stories, what it's meant to you, what's been lost, we can talk about it. And in the world of the stages being lost, I saw an interesting suggestion made by a person who was actually a fish harvester herself, and she says this. This is a question being asked of uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, who put out a pretty tone-deaf tweet about, you know, if a lobster washes up, don't take it, it's, it's still considered poaching. There's big issues. They apologized for the tweet, but it was a weird one to send out. But in reply to one of the comments coming from DFO, this lady says, Will you expand the Atlantic Fisheries Fund to allow people impacted by the storm access to the program to rebuild their enterprises, waive licensing fees for next season? Put your money where your tweet is. These are some of the big questions that we're going to ask ourselves. Not only about the cleanup and the rebuild, but how we rebuild, where we rebuild. There's no need, and it's absolutely out of touch, to point to some of the homes that have been built decades ago along the coastline. And some of the homes that were lost were well removed from high water marks. This is something that people have never seen. So there's a good question being asked by this fish harvester about some of the specifics, like all these stages and enterprises that have been upended because of what we've seen with Fiona. So let's see, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But when we come back, let's have a conversation about whatever you like. Knowing full well, I'll reiterate it one more time, we know that you're thinking about what's happened on the southwest coast in particular, or maybe with your family and friends in other parts of the country that were also hit by Fiona, and then we can tackle any other conversation as you desire. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for making time for the show. Pardon? I said thanks for making time for the program this morning. Oh, no problem. No worries. So sometimes we throw around designations like casual and permanent full-time without really knowing what the legitimate practical difference is between it. What sort of additional flexibility does a casual nurse have versus a permanent full-time? Well, before I answer that, I'd just like to say to the people of the province, um, you know, our hearts and minds have been with you all uh, this past weekend, those who are impacted by Fiona, and shout out to all first responders, healthcare workers, uh, municipalities and that that have stepped up to help out the people uh, in this dire situation that we're facing. Absolutely. Here, here. So casual versus full-time. Yep. So I've been a full-time uh, worker for 32 years. 
which means I have a schedule, I have benefits, I have the public service pension plan. Um, Not a lot of flexibility because if you're scheduled and you're looking for a day off, the likelihood at the present time is you're going to have to try and switch your shifts with somebody else or you're just going to have to beg to get it off. And the likelihood is that you will not be approved that leave. Casuals, on the other hand, have flexibility in that they can choose when they work. So if the health authority or the unit goes to them and says, there's this many shifts in the six-week schedule that we need filled, can you fill any of them? You have the option as a casual to say yes or no and pick what shifts you want. So therefore, you're not stuck in the situation that a permanent and temporary staff are in that you have flexibility over your schedule and work life, whereas permanent and temporary staff don't. And it's not like there's only a few casual nurses on staff. In Eastern Health, about 28%. In Central Health, about 28%. Western Health, about 25%. No numbers from Labrador, Grenfell. But here's what jumps off the page when I read these news stories of that. Is back in August when there was an announcement of new incentives to try to attract casual nurses to move into permanent full-time. Signing bonus, retention bonuses, all other issues with the uh, mental health supports, exploring childcare supports outside of regular hours. And for some of these casual nurses, they say, that's not enough, it never will be enough what will what will it take well there's nothing that we can say right now definitively that will change uh, a casual's mind to take a permanent position we knew going into the think tank and coming out of it with the initiatives that these were short-term measures to try and get us through the summer period and allow the nurses to have some time off this summer because as you know we had members the past two years who never got a day of holidays and worked two years straight during the pandemic. So we knew these were out-of-the-box short-term measures. And as, you know, everyone knows, the wheels of, uh, you know, in the department and with the government and that are a lot slower than what we would like. Uh, And that's because, you know, due diligence has to be done in that. But we got these incentives out the gate relatively quickly Uh, when you look at other initiatives coming out of government. Will they help? We do know that um, over 1,500 of our members signed up for the retention bonus as of Friday. Um, So we only just got that out there, how they could apply in that. It took some time, you know, to get the electronic forms and process and everything straightened out. We will be evaluating. So at the end of this, we will be evaluating, did it work? Did it help out for the summer to get people time off, which was our goal at the beginning of this? But we also know it's going to take some more out-of-the-box ideas and a longer-term strategy of health for human resources. How does the retention bonus work? What's, what's involved? So each permanent or temporary registered nurse or nurse practitioner in the province uh, can sign on for a year's return in service, which equates to 1,950 hours. And it is a um, $3,000 sign-on bonus. So basically we're, what they're doing is saying, okay, if you agree to stay on for another year, we're going to pay you $3,000. And all of these initiatives were done to try and give our members hope, give the public hope that we're working on the healthcare system. We know the healthcare system is broken. And just trying to come up with some hope for our members 
to get him through the summer months and the next few months, we know that these measures are not enough. There's talk of going to Ontario to recruit, going to the United Kingdom to recruit. When we talk about, say, for instance, doctors, there's licensing issues that are different province to province. What's the deal when it comes to registered nurses? Because it's no sense trying to recruit if there's a long, lengthy paper uh, warfare that has to be fought, for instance, a doctor to come to the Newfoundland and Labrador. What's, this, what's the situation regarding RNs? Well, it's a similar situation. Uh, the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, is their governing body. So they are the ones who uh, look at the standards of practice and our licensing requirements. So each registered nurse who is recruited to come to Newfoundland and Labrador has to go through the college in order to be licensed to practice in Newfoundland. Uh, I'm not sure where the government are going, but I do know this nursing shortage is not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. It is also across Canada, and we have a global shortage of registered nurses. When people hear the stories from nurses who are just so burnt out, I just got an email uh, while we were speaking. I just saw it at the corner of my eye, and it said, uh, I retired. I was eligible for my pension. I retired simply because I couldn't get a break. I've never been happier. When those types of stories are so prominent, even though we've expanded the number of seats at the nursing school, what have you, what's the worry that people are being talked out of even joining the forces as a registered nurse, given what we hear from nurses themselves? Well, we know that 90% of our members and nurses are facing burnout. They're mentally and physically exhausted. Uh, But we also know, you know, I talk to students on a regular basis. I go in and talk to fourth-year nursing students. And we don't have an issue recruiting registered nurses. Our issue is retaining them. We can't afford for one more registered nurse to walk out of the system right now. We're already over 600 vacancies. And I expect that that number is higher when we get the numbers this fall. We need safer working conditions. We need retention and recruitment initiatives to focus on the long term, the medium term, and for right now. The issue is real right across the board when we talk about healthcare professionals. And you're right. I mean, the national stories are there for people to consider, and it's not unique to us, which makes it even more tricky, I think is the right word to say, when we're trying to recruit. Because if recruitment is not the problem, retention is the problem. If you were able to add one incentive to the retention file, could you highlight one or a couple of areas where you think we can do better? Well, We do know that the think tank, we came up with a solution of paying double time so until October 31st. And that was to fill in the gaps in the schedules. We have six-week schedules with 60, 60, six-zero shifts not covered. We had a unit in Western Memorial in May, $300,000 worth of overtime and mandated shifts. That's what was paid out. So we're going to need to invest in the people who are actually in the system, if we're going to retain them. Is there anything that registered nurses are able to do, trained to do, licensed to do, that they're unable to do currently, given the landscape or the legislation? Because we talk about scope of practice, whether it be expanding it for pharmacists or nurse practitioners or licensed practical nurses. How about registered nurses? I do know that legislation is changing around uh, registered nurses having the ability to prescribe. Um, That has not been completed yet, uh, and we're looking forward to that. But when we talk about scope of practice, everybody needs to be practicing within their scope of practice. Licensed practical nurses need to be able to work to their scope, registered nurses to theirs, and nurse practitioners to theirs. 
And talking about nurse practitioners, I'll go on and talk about the over 150,000 members of our society who do not have a primary health care provider, which means a family physician or a nurse practitioner. And tomorrow, uh, I'm meeting with the Minister Osborne to discuss nurse practitioner funding models so that they can open up clinics and people do not have to pay out of pocket. It is beyond time, past time, for to get this done and to get it done right for the people of this province. Appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Isabel Coffey, she's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Dave Andrews from Freightway International Blue Water Shipping. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Oh, can't complain. My buddy can't complain. Uh, you put up an advertisement for us this morning, I guess, with uh, Susan Anthony for drop-offs uh, to go around for port basque mm-hmm. uh, A little bit more about it is... Uh, we're in, I guess, working with the uh, Lions Club in Port Basque to gather up donations for them. Uh, toiletries, school supplies, clothing, winter clothing, hats and mitts, uh, laundry detergent, all very key things that we need dropped off. Uh, you know, Port Basque is a key location to all of Newfoundland, so everybody knows, because that's where all of our food comes in from. So that community as a whole is very key. And because of that, that's why all of us are getting together to make sure that they're taken care of, other than the fact that we're just Newfoundlanders and that's what we do. Do you have a personal relationship with the community, whether it be Port Basque or some of the communities that were impacted? I don't have any personal relationship. No, I do not. Uh, we use all we use Marine Atlantic uh, on a daily basis, so everybody in the community is key to us because they take care of all of our truckers and drivers and logistics people who travel across Marine Atlantic on a daily basis. What exactly are you collecting, Dave? Uh, we need uh, non-perishable food items, uh, laundry detergent, clothing, toiletries, uh, school supplies for the kids, anything along those lines, anything that can be donated would be gratefully helped. When we talk about clothing, are we talking gently used or you need it to be new? I know that new underwear is the, the one thing we've told it needs to be new, but what about, say, coats and hats and whatever else? All that can be gently used, anything that anybody would give to the Salvation Army or to anyone else that you would normally donate in a group organization. Right now, these people need it. Good on you for taking this on. So what's the hours of operation for people to drop off their donations today? Uh, We're here at 27 Duffy Place from 9 to 5. Uh, There's a big 53-foot trailer packed in front of the building that we're hoping to fill. Uh, as well as, just give me one second now, I'm going to get the other address for you. It's Kikitalic Corporation. They are up on Kmout Road, and their address is just... 1121, yep. 1121 Kmout Road. So we have people at both places. Uh, Kikitalic is from 9 to 4. Freightway Blue Water is 9 to 5. Uh, we also uh, have Susan there who is out collecting as well, and we also uh, have staff going out to pick up as well. So if anybody has any issues or needs help to pick it up, don't hesitate to give Susan a call or myself, uh, Dave, uh, 709-690-4920. Good on you for doing it this morning, Dave. Really appreciate the effort and your time. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Asked good companies, good people, stepping up, and you know... I mean, a, 50 foot, a 53-foot trailer, that's going to require some pretty generous activity 
from folks in and around the St. John's metro region today. So you heard, Dave, they're looking for just about everything. And I've seen people saying that they need uh, baby formula and diapers. So there's probably whatever you can think of that you would have donated to whether it be the Salvation Army or other organizations in the past, we need it. I think bottled water was one, baby formula, if I already mentioned that. So there's going to be some activity. So I'll probably see you if you're around there around 1 o'clock. I'm going to try to make my way over to 27 Duffy Place. And if you're around Port of Basque, and of course there's parts of the community where you're told not to go, but the donations were being dropped off at the high school, but now they want you to drop them off at the Lions Club. So that's just some personal information there in the town of Port of Basque. No longer going to the high school with your donation. Please go to the Lions Club. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Stephanie, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm okay this morning. How about you? Good. What's going on? So um, I actually wanted to talk to the listeners, anybody out there in the beauty industry, um, so that would be hairstylists, estheticians, even Mm -hmm. front desk staff if they work in a salon or spa. We are hosting the very first mental health first aid in Canada here in Newfoundland. We're hoping to make it a trend across Canada because beauty professionals, um, whether they want to be or not, tend to be the first responders for mental health. And so, yeah, we are hosting it next Sunday. So this Sunday, actually, October 2nd and 3rd here in the city. What do you mean by uh, beauty professionals would be first responders? What exactly are are you getting at with that? So it's a great question. Basically, because we have such close contact to our guests, um, the fact that we can sit with them for hours sometimes, we see them regularly, we touch them physically, which is not uh, all professions don't get that opportunity to touch their guests. And because of that, it creates a unique, really, relationship between us and the people we see during the day. And so it can create this feeling of trust so people share with us more than they might share with other people. There's even been articles written on it um, that they share with us more than their psychologists and their psychiatrists. But we don't always have that education, Patty, to, to deal with those conversations. We do our best. And I will say that hairstylists, estheticians, beauty professionals, they probably are the most empathetic people I've ever met. But we, again, just don't have the knowledge to have these type of conversations. And so that's what this course will bring to them. So have you or someone else in the group been uh, trained as a facilitator to offer this type of course? That's a really good question. So I'm the host. We have Allison Butler. So Allison Butler is a trained uh, mental health first aid facilitator. So I will not be facilitating. I just really wanted to bring this to everyone. So, um, yeah, she will be the facilitator for this. And she's been doing it now for several years. I've actually been invited to participate in a mental health first aid uh, program in the past. I haven't up until now, but it's probably a pretty good idea. What kind of conversations will be had with the various beauty professionals? So this one, what's really cool is that because it's going to be all beauty professionals and it's so industry specific, everything will be geared around what we face behind the chair. So what are the exact scenarios that happen for us, um, whether it be hairstylists, estheticians, you know, front desk staff, the unique experiences that we've had. 
And specifically, we'll be learning about how to have those conversations. So any mental health first aid course will share with you how to have difficult conversations around mental health. So whether you have someone who is um, maybe just having a decline in their mental health or right to having a, a critical situation, what are the skills you need in order to have the conversation with them so you have confidence in saying it and you can support them in what they're going through? Do beauty professionals, as a rule, face these types of issues on the job? Because I had never really given it any thought, so I'm glad you called on it this morning. So is it they feel the need to have these personal conversations when they're with their client? Or what is it that drives some of the mental health concerns that you're trying to address? Oh, Patty, this is such a great great question because it is something that I'll like the first time. So I got my mental health first aid certification in 2019. And not even a week later, we had a crisis situation at our salon. I'm not going to get into the details because they really don't matter, but this is something that does happen. And what it is, again, it's just the physical touch. I can't see just the physical touch. There's so much to it. So Psychology Today, their article actually said it had to do with the fact that it's non-confrontational. So when you sit down with a therapist, they sit in front of you. Sometimes they have a notebook, right? And you, you have this Um, barrier sometimes between you and a therapist or mental health professional knowing that they're there to quote-unquote diagnose whereas when you're sitting down with a beauty professional there's not that same level of uh, formality and so you also a lot of times are talking through a mirror so that also creates this openness so it's not a direct staring at you and then on top of that added physical touch which a lot of us take for granted or did before the pandemic. But now we know just how much we all need that connection. And so now more than ever, Patty, it's actually needed because of the decline in mental health, specifically even in this province. Do beauty professionals feel the need to start or instigate conversations? Or is it, you know, up to the individual whether or not they just want want to bounce off whatever their client is like? Because I'm a chatterbox. I have no problem having a conversation with my uh, stylist. So do beauty professionals feel the need to be the one starting conversations? That's a very individual thing. So some beauty professionals are very outgoing on their own and would enjoy conversation and probably do instigate conversation. Some are okay with not having any conversation. And I think those who, the more experience they get, I believe they most likely will allow that to be the client's. Um, I guess, decision, whether or not they have conversation or not. But every, everybody runs their own little business behind the chair or as an esthetician differently. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, a hairdresser or someone doing your nails uh, would be, you know, very much not only driving their own little business here, but you develop a relationship. Look, I've been seeing the same lady now for well over a decade. So, you know, I guess for between her and I, we've got this built-in relationship where we actually talk about our families and others, but just different faces every day. Some clients are first-timers or what have you. So this is a pretty interesting conversation, actually. So where and when for this particular first aid clinic or course? I'm sorry, say that again? Where and when for the, uh, the upcoming mental health first aid? So it's this coming Sunday and Monday. October 2nd and 3rd, and it's going to be at the airport uh, Best Western. Is there a cost? There is. It's 213 plus tax per individual. Our recommendation is that, well, listen, Patty, here's the thing. This is not a first time. We really want to hold this over and over because the goal is to have one person per salon for every salon and spa in the city. 
because it again these things happen and um, we notice to your point i just want to add one thing to what you said the fact that you sit in the chair for you know once every six weeks or so for 10 years we see that mental health decline sometimes better than family members even right so that's that's the why and yeah so having one person in every salon is the goal at least or at least even better one person per shift of every salon to have their mental health first aid Stephanie, this has nothing to do with it, but it just popped in my head because uh, last week and a couple times in the recent past, we've been talking about the tip nudge. And, you know, people being asked to tip more than ever before when you're past the uh, the, the keypad to uh, deal mm-hmm. with your debit card, what have you. How common is it or has it changed in your business? I will say that uh, gratuities in our business, although not for most salons, are not nece- like the, it's not a, a standard fee we put on. It's very much welcomed. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, because the one example I gave was somewhere where, where I am a patron. It used to be the tips uh, suggestions were as low as 10, the 10, 15, 18, 20. Now at that same place, the lowest option is 18. It just feels like that whole tip nudge cha- has changed dramatically, yeah. I think, during the pandemic. Uh, it's good to have you on. Congratulations on putting off this mental health first aid clinic. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I guess your hairdresser is very much akin to the bartender. You know, you have those types of conversations that relationships, whether or not you realize it, I think that's probably the case. Anyway, there you go. I could use a haircut, to be honest. All right, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our, our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the air. So when we take this break, you pick up the phone. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament for St. John South Mount Pearl. He's the Minister of Labor, Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. Thank you, sir. How about you? Not bad. Uh, heading out to um, out to the West Coast in a couple of hours uh, just to see for myself the extent of the damage, and I think to take a look at Port of Basque, but also to look at other communities like Burgio and Lamia um, that have not been getting, I think, the same amount of media attention, just we haven't had uh, cameras in those areas, although Terry Roberts has been getting some uh, just shattering pictures out of uh, some of those communities this morning. Yeah, I see he was in Burnt um, Islands. You know, and sometimes, yeah. you know, we, we see the big impacts, and, you know, the stories of a life lost and homes yeah. being destroyed, swept into the sea is so much broader than that. And, you know, we can't yeah. dismiss it. For instance, I see Terry Roberts reporting about, you know, fishing stages, which begs yeah. the question about the role DFO plays here to maybe waive fees so they can rebuild their enterprises. There's just so many moving parts to this. It's almost hard for me this morning to, to know where to begin or where to focus. Yeah, yesterday we had a meeting of the Incident Response Group, which is the the group of cabinet ministers that we set up for for incidents like this. Uh, the Prime Minister was there. It was a you know fairly extensive meeting. Uh, Prime Minister Bill Blair, who's the Minister of Emergency Preparedness, uh, Anita Anand, the Minister of Defence, myself, um, and other ministers from you know around the Maritimes in Newfoundland and Labrador, just to to sort through you know the beginnings of of what we got to tackle. Small craft harbors came up. Uh, as you know, as something because we could see that the damage had been done there. And to your point, you know, what can we do to alleviate some of the 
the burden uh, that we know is on fishermen in those communities as well. So, yeah, you're right. You've got to tackle a whole bunch of things, but we're in the process of doing that, which is good. The most immediate thing that we can do is, uh, you know, make sure that we get the Canadian Armed Forces in areas where they can help. So we've got uh, the, the chief of defense staff was on the call as well to, to say that they've got three uh, reserves platoons, which is good, and rangers as well. We could use all of those, I think about 100 personnel. Um, we have the, the good fortune of having two uh, vessels in St. John's as well, HMCS Goose Bay and a new boat, HMCS Margaret Brook, uh, which is one of our new Arctic patrol vessels. And coincidentally, I took a kind of a quiet, discreet pic- a trip on it on Saturday because my brother was in town, Danny O'Regan, and, and Danny, uh, my brother, was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. He was going to be doing some work with them, but they, I think, now are going to be seconded. Um, to do some community checkups in Francois, Gray River, Ramia, and Lapoil. But I tell you, I got a firsthand look at this, uh, at this boat, and it's sick bay alone is, uh, is just incredible, the facilities that they have, because it was designed to be able to hit uh, northern communities that wouldn't have many medical facilities, um, you know, in cases of emergency. So it's actually very, it's, it's, it's well-equipped to handle some communities right now who may be stranded and may, need to, may be in need of assistance. But I would add this. I think, you know, Western Health and others, you know, the, the, the infrastructure and the, the government services that we rely upon, they are functioning, they are working. I'm in constant contact with provincial ministers, and, and you know, things are up and going. People are moving. Uh, people are getting the help that they need. So, and, and we're working hand-in-glove together. I'm heading out there, as I said, uh, in a few hours. Goody Hutchins is already on the ground. She's, uh, I was just talking to her then. She's, uh, she's with the mayor of Port of Basque. So everybody's working together, and you know we'll get through it. Uh, I think that's the important thing. I think uh, we're. I think everybody is is well equipped to handle it. But the extent of the damage is something that I think it's really important to get out there and see for yourself if you could be making important decisions on who gets that assistance and, and the extent of that assistance. What type of assistance do the hundred troops bring? So you know when we had them here for Snowmageddon, for instance, they were a big part of like the shovel brigade and checking in on seniors who may have been cut off from that's the right. rest of their neighborhood or community. So are we simply bringing our like? It's not simply. Are they part of the cleanup crew? Are there going to be army engineers? Because there's a lot of assessment that has to be done to deem whether or not one house, one building is safe to return to. So what type of supports are the troops bringing? Yeah, that's the assessment I think that's being conducted today, and I think it was well underway yesterday as well. I'll have a better idea of that when I get out there. I think uh, the good news is, uh, and this was a concern of mine initially too, was just uh, you know a larger issue for the province in terms of our supply chains and food security, was uh, was road access to the Marine Atlantic Terminal. Um, you know, would, would trucks be able to get on and get off? And and for those people who don't know, but I think many do, Marine Atlantic services are you know up and running and have been now for a bit. Um, so that you know, so we, you know, it, it would have been easy, Patty, to, to you know to see a, a road wash out there or something. You can imagine now the, the, what that would have cost. That certainly would have been a priority uh, for the reservists or for the you know once they got out there. So we uh, we'll have a better idea, uh, I would say, over the course of the day. And uh, happy for Goody or I to give you a, a, a check in tomorrow. What else is involved with the federal supports? Because we know Minister Hogan requested it formally. It's been approved by Minister Blair, and the troops are coming. What other federal, in this case, financial supports are going to be available to communities that have been hit? Well, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, we we've been through this before. I mean, whether it was Snowmageddon or whether it was, uh, I mean, go right back actually to uh, to Igor, but and to others. Um, uh, we'll have a better idea, I think, in the next couple of days. Uh, it, it, it would appear 
that a lot of the damage appears to be to private property. Um, and then I think some of the public damage, you know, in, in other communities, like I said, like in Ramia, like in Bergio and other places, those are, you know, we're, we're still assessing. I know that there is an issue, I believe, with the water supply in Ramia. Um, and if people aren't able to get uh, water, then that is a, an immediate problem, making sure that they do have access to clean water. And then we got to make sure that, you know, we, we are able to repair that. Uh, you know, can we repair it? Can it get repaired before winter? These are things that, you know, people with, uh, with more experience than me are going to be uh, assessing in the next couple of days. And we're going to need all the help we can get. And I know there's five of the ten provinces have been impacted by Fiona, so it's going to be widespread need. And if you don't mind, like I tried to mention off the top of the program today, of course, everybody listening, everybody that potentially will call the program today will be thinking about the folks, whether it be in Burnt Islands or Ramia or Lapoil or Channel Port of Basque, but also there's so many other issues that we need to keep on the front burner as well because they're important. So let's go to your portfolio. Record high job vacancies in the country. So the basic question is, where did all the workers go? Believe it or not, a lot of it's what I would call you know, simple demographics. We've known for a long, long, long time that baby boomers were eventually going to leave the workforce. And a lot of them made the decision to go into early retirement during COVID. They just kind of went, you know, shag it, I've had enough, and that's it. Um, and, and a lot did it. And, and that had an effect. It, we would have felt it regardless. I think, you know, we, we, we're just at that point in time when you do have baby boomers who are retired from the workforce. The other demographic reality that we're dealing with is, uh, and we've known this for a long time, is that uh, people started having fewer youngsters. And and it's really young people, um, those youngsters that we were talking about, you know, 20-odd years ago, saying, boy, geez, people aren't having the same number of youngsters. They're all in their late teens, early 20s. And those were, you know, those are the ages of, of workers that you look for for retail, for hospitality, for tourism, and and so you just you don't see them because we you know there aren't as many, um, and those things really came to a head at the exact same time as COVID, um, and spurred as I said more baby boomers to decide to uh, just step out of the workforce. So that all happened, and 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 we are feeling it, and we are in this uh, strange situation where we have uh, one of the highest employment rates and lowest unemployment rates coming out of a pandemic. That is not something that I expected, but but here we are. And, you know, while in some ways it's good news, in other ways it is a significant challenge. Let me see if I can craft this question the way I intended. So, you know, the inflation numbers, cost of living, affordability issues have been very, very real, but wage hikes aren't keeping up with either of them. I know the federal government cannot get in the business of legislating that private sector companies increase their wage offerings, you know, commensurate with, say, for instance, inflation. But how many of those companies who are saying that they can't hire workers but have not offered wages that have kept up with the Joneses, but they were also taking some of the wage subsidies from the federal government. Governments were quick to claw back from people who were ineligible for SERP, but was infuriating for many to see companies for the first time create a dividend for their supporters or shareholders or to expand their dividend or to report a surplus, like they said the quiet part out loud at the Royal Golf Club in Ottawa, million-dollar surplus. Why? Because of the wage subsidy. So with all those things in conjunction, what can the federal government do? Because a lot of these companies took that wage subsidy money. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll be honest with you. You know, I, uh, as you know, during during COVID, uh, fought quite hard, particularly for our offshore, not just our offshore, I would say, but for also for the for the oil industry in in Alberta and in Saskatchewan. 
Um, you know, particularly thinking of workers out there. We put in an orphan and a well program. We put in supports for the offshore here because we, wanted, we needed to keep workers in place because we need workers, you know, in one of our most vital industries, which is in energy, which is in, in oil and gas. And, and also, we need to make sure that there's significant investments in those industries to lower emissions and build up renewables. I mean, if we, you can't ignore the industry, which is what I always tell people. You can't just say, oh, well, we're just going to build solar panels. No, no, no. It's, you you got to tackle this. But I got to say, it is it is uh, quite aggravating uh, when I have been told by many of the, of the heads of these companies that there will be significant investments made in lowering emissions. And what I'm seeing is a lot of executive compensation and, and stock buybacks. I didn't fight hard for the industry to see that. I wanted investments in workers. Uh, that was the point, to retain workers, to retain the people that we would need to lower those emissions. I, you know, I keep saying nobody else knows where to tighten the screws and make sure the methane doesn't leak. So, you know, I I share the frustration. Um, I will say this. uh, We had a series of uh, labor disruptions uh, coming down the pipe that I was, you know, just, well, negotiations that I knew were going to happen and and that would all affect our supply chain um, that I was very concerned about. We came to a head with it with CP rail in the spring, but then it was followed quickly by CN rail, Via rail, uh, WestJet, Purolator, Loomis. Um, you know, all basically in the business of getting people and goods around this country. And uh, we were able to reach agreements with all of those companies and unions. I'm very grateful for that. Some of it is because we have an absolute crackerjack team in the Labor Department federally who are able to bring people to the table and keep people at the table. And that is a very difficult job. But it's also because a number of these, I think, union leadership realized that, by Jesus, there's enough going on in the world. People's nerves are raw, raw, and ultimately workers wanted a decent settlement. Um, but also a number of these companies realized, I'm in the middle of a labor shortage. We're in the middle of a labor shortage. We've got to make sure that we you know, retain the workers that we have. And so a number of these unions, they, they did uh, settle at the table on significant wage increases for their membership. So it, it's happening bit by bit. People are negotiating new solutions. I'm telling you, we, you know, like I said, we had about six or seven areas this summer that I was gravely concerned about, uh, especially after we had a near miss with CP Rail. But I'm you know, happy to say that everybody kind of came to their senses and arrived at good deals that uh, all parties seem to be happy with. And that's because they are all waking up to the reality that we live now in a country where there are more jobs than people. Lots of talk about what is a tax, CPP contributions, EI contributions, but also there's been a lot of discussion about what's the age of eligibility for your pension. You know, there was talk of moving from 65 to 67. What is the actual plan? Because it's pretty confusing when you try to find out the specific details. On OAS or on CPP? Yeah, on all age security. Yeah, there was, there was an effort made by the Harbor government to move it to 67. We, we made sure that it stayed at 65. Uh, I don't think there's ever been any wavering on that on our part. We keep, uh, you know, that's something that we, we stood by and we made sure it would happen. So I don't, I don't think there should be any confusion about that. I know, you know, it, and this has been a lot of to and fro in the House on CPP and on EI. Uh, it, it really is important that, you know, it, it – those are not tax hikes. Those are those are dedicated funds that go back to people to make sure that they are, you know, it's there for them when they need it. Um, you know, CPP by by making sure that you know we we ensured its viability by increasing contributions slightly. 
um, we ensured its continued long-term viability and that people would receive more money in their retirement. And I think actually the reforms that we made to CPP are incredibly important and will benefit a lot of people who are listening, a lot of people in our province and across the country. Now, on EI, it's the same thing. I mean, you, you know, you want to make sure that you have a viable fund. And uh, so those are things that are there for people and they are dedicated. So, I, I you know, it's, it's not a tax. It's making sure that you have contributions so, you know, so that it's there for people. Uh, last one. So many different legislatures have gone back to full-on in-person debate or question periods. Why Parliament operating as a hybrid? I don't know. Um, I know that hybrid works very well for us. And I don't, I don't you know, this malarkey about not showing up for work. Uh, you know, we live in the biggest country, certainly the biggest democ- democracy in the world. It's a big country. And people have to fly to Ottawa in order to uh, participate in Parliament. That's the way that it's always been. At the, at the same time, people also demand that their members of Parliament know their communities, know their communities well, see their communities, and talk to their constituents. They want to see them in person. It's very difficult to do it all, and a lot of people are strong out doing it. Um, I'm not here complaining about you know MPs' lot in life, but I am saying that when you got a technology that we all realize works extremely well, and then it can afford some flexibility, why wouldn't you do it? I, I'm one of these people that believes if you can be in the House of Commons for question period in person, you should be. Um, uh, but, you know, having the flexibility that right now, let's say today, you know, it's very important for me as, as a minister uh, who represents this province to be in those communities and see, in those, see those communities. And if for some reason, you know, the, the, the whip, which is the person in the government caucus who makes sure that enough MPs are in the House, if he said, James, we need you, you know, and if I'm if I can find somewhere with the service out there, um, you know, I can participate in question period by my phone. That is an incredible that, that allows me to do my job. Um, it is not me. I'm not doing any work. That's for sure. So, I mean, that's just all malarkey. And I think there's enough people out there who, you know, who are working via Zoom who would kind of resent the fact that, you know, that if they're home and, and work in a way that that means that they're not working. Of course, they're working. We're all working. And, and you know, Zoom and other technologies allow us to do that. Um, you know, where we can find that balance between, you know, showing up in a legislature in Ottawa and doing our work in person and being close and near to our constituents or to other parts of the country in order to be able to do our work. Trust me, there's no – and I'll say this about MPs in any, in any party in, in, uh, in the House of Commons. You know, it's, it's a, it is a collection of very hardworking people in my mind. Uh, they're for the, with the best of intentions for the most part. And nobody's abusing that system. So, you know, I mean, sometimes when the conservative leadership goes on about they're not showing up for work, I can tell you there's a, more than a handful of conservative MPs who said to me, geez, boys, you're going to stick with the hybrid, aren't you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, it works. It allows us to find a better balance between the, the, the talking to our constituents, being in our constituency, and showing, uh, you know, and doing what we need to do in the legislature. Last one, you mentioned travel. So come the 30th of this month, some of the border travel restrictions go away, including arrive can will be optional. If it was important to use arrive can, and I don't really know what it had to do with vaccination status and or protecting the community and public health, but if it was important to implement it at all, why make it optional? Because that feels like someone's admitting that it was a mistake. Yeah, um, look, I, I would I would say, Patty, on ArriveCan and a lot of these other programs, you know, we, we, we were doing the best as we went along to make sure that we were assuring people and assuring you know, Canadians assuring people from you know outside the country who were worried about coming into the country. We wanted to make sure everybody understood that we were doing everything we could to keep people safe, to keep the country safe. Um, and you know what? For the most part, 
you know, by almost every measure, we've done a better job than almost any other country in the world. Um, and, it, you know, you're, you're always trying to figure out that balance between, okay, now it's time to relax restrictions. And, and to, you know, because I, I'm one of these people who really believes that, you know, you infringe upon the freedoms of people um, with a great deal of, of scrutiny and care. I mean, that is, you know, some of the things that we had to do in order to, to keep people in place, keep people at home. I mean, it was pretty severe for any democracy. Um, I'd stand by it because, you know, you're talking, you're talking about a, a disease that, you know, didn't get two wits about, you know, your charter of rights and freedoms. But, you know, you, you made sure that you did these things temporarily and that there were clear sunset clauses on them and that you scrutinize them. And I think for the most part, we've been very good at that. But, you know, there's always going to be holdovers and things that you second guess. And, and then there's some things that you were thinking, well, you know, should we keep them in place because we may need them again? Um, it's never perfect. Uh, so, I mean, I can't get into the particulars of Arrive Can. I can only tell you that, for the, you know, for the most part, when we sat down and made these decisions, uh, in, going into as COVID was erupting, in the middle of COVID, and now as we seem to be coming out, and, but, but concerned that there may be another wave, you know, we're just doing our level best to find that balance. Uh, it isn't perfect. It isn't an exact science. Uh, but I think that, you know, for the most part, we've gotten it right. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. All right, Patrick. Take, take care. Bye bye. Shia Mr. Regan, of course, the Minister of Labor, the member for St. John's South, Mount Pearl. Let's take a break. Don't go away. The workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Judy Morrow from Morrow, Morrow and Crosby Law Offices. Good morning, Judy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. And thank you very much for contacting me this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to pass out my condolences, my sincere condolences to the family members of the, the one fatality that we had over in the, the Port of Ass area. Um, it's certainly uh, a very, it's been a very difficult weekend for many people and, uh, you know, the loss of life is never, it's not something that we can replace. But certainly, you know, um, with respect to the property damage, it can be, you know, it, it is very devastating. We've all seen the, um, you know, what's going on over there over the weekend and the damage that Fiona has caused. It's, it's mind-blowing, to be honest with you, Patty. And uh, I, I know that I, I reached out to Minister Persons yesterday and said, you know, if there's any way at all that I can help uh, regarding property damage and filing insurance claims, um, I'm here to help, and, um, you know, it's something that we as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, I think we step up when needed, and sometimes people will just need uh, that friendly voice, that reassurance that, you know, that somebody is here to help uh, in case that they have any issues. So that's that's what I'm about this morning. I've been taking phone calls and emails all morning from people who, uh, who've who been uh, requesting some help. So you're offering free legal services? Yes, I am. To help with the, you know, filing insurance claims, um, to dealing with their insurance companies, reviewing their policies, and to see, you know, what coverage the, the particular individuals have for their for their property damage. What kind of hurdles requires a lawyer? Now, I've dealt with insurance companies in the past too, so I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What sort of legal hurdles need to be cleared by a lawyer representing a client when we talk about going to an insurance company to get coverage for some, something you've been paying pretty steep premiums for? Give us some examples of the things that you encounter. Uh, well, well, you know, first of all, it depends upon the policy of insurance that an individual has. 
So in individual home, there's all kinds of different policies of insurance that you can have that can be exclusions, restrictions, uh, full coverage. Um, you know, so you know we have to assess the the particular policy. So there's there's no one global answer to that, Patty. Um, what I'm asking people to do is is for those people who do have insurance coverage, and hopefully everybody has some form of insurance coverage, to get you know to reach out, file their get their claim filed. Uh, get the process started, get a copy of the policy. Um, if there's any issues, I am there to step in and help out to see if see what exclusions or limitations or, you know, some things just may be open for interpretation and then we can go fight for certain things uh, to ensure that they get the, the maximum coverage that they're entitled to under their policy. Is there anything that people need to be aware of to prepare to file their claim, whether it be photographs or what have you? Absolutely, you know, and it's it, it's a bit late for me to be saying this to somebody who's already had to leave their house and their house is already swept out to sea. But I mean, if you've got photos of the inside of your house and the contents, you know, the structure, new renovations that were done, if there's any photos that you or family members have or you have on your phone and you have in your possession, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if I were to advise someone prior to leaving their house, and I would advise somebody this regardless. You know, if you can have a bank of photos of all of your belongings and, you know, file somewhere away from your premises in case of a fire or in case of this kind of a disaster, absolutely it would go a long way in filing your claim at the end of the day. And I know it's a bit too late for this weather event, but it won't be the last. That's the unfortunate reality we're dealing with there, whether it be frequency or severity. So it's just a good rule of thumb regardless if you're impacted by Fiona because the next one's right behind. Yeah, absolutely. Or a fire. I mean, any of us can, can you know, can can be the victims of a, you know, a, a house fire or, you know, a home, inva- home invasion or damage or vandalism. So, you know, having photos off, off your premises is always a really good idea because, uh, you know, you've got proof of, of your, the ownership and the contents that you had and the structure of your home and the, the renovations and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you know, there's, for some people, there may not be a lot that we can do. And there's some people, the insurance companies, they may have full coverage and they may just step up to the plate. I was talking with one lady this morning. The adjuster is already on the way. So, you know, it, it's not all lost, but I thought that I would just offer this to people to give them some comfort uh, today and some help and assistance. It's got to be tremendously overwhelming for some of these people uh, out in the Port of Ass area and, you know, out in, the, you know, uh, um, the, the surrounding communities. It, it, when I when I watch this over the weekend on the news, it, you know, it, it, it's just heartbreaking. And um, thank God, you know, I'm, as I say, my condolences to the family who lost a loved one through all of this. And, you know, I, we had to thank God that we didn't have more fatalities because it could have been a lot worse. And uh, whatever I can do to help, I'm, I'm there to help. I couldn't have been further away geographically, but the sites, the images, the videos were terrifying. They really yeah. were. So I think you're doing a good service here, Judy, offering up your legal expertise here. Because for some people, it might not be a big legal battle ahead, but it's daunting. It's intimidating to deal with insurance companies sometimes. Maybe they've never had to do anything like this before. So just being walked through the various steps is going to be very helpful. How would you like people to reach out uh, via the phone or email? What would you like to do? I, I have a, an email. My office email um, is, is Judy Morrow at nf.aibn.com. And I have a, a, a toll free number at 1 888 786 9207. And I am there to help in any way that I can. And as I say, 
you know, as you as you just pointed out, you know, there may not be any big legal battle, you know, flowing from any of this, but just the comfort and the guidance to help help them through the process. And if this is some small way that I can help, uh, that's what I want to do. Judy, if you could give me the email and phone number one more time, a little slower, so I could jot it down, because inevitably someone's going to ask me for it. Okay, it's Judy Morrow, J U D Y M O R R O W, mm-hmm. at N F for Newfound. Dot A I B N, Apple Ingrid Betty Nancy. Mm-hmm. Dot com. Dot com. And the phone number one more time, please. One triple eight. Seven eight six nine two zero seven. Seven eight six nine two zero seven. Nine two zero seven. Thanks very much for this, Judy. You're kindly welcome. Take good Thanks care. Thanks for reaching out. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that's going to be really helpful because, you know, sometimes, and not everyone's got that bit of support around them to help walk them through filing a, an insurance claim. Some of these claims can be massive. And as I mentioned, you know, the number of sheds and stages and houses that were completely washed away, destroyed, add to the fact just how many other structures are going to be possibly never lived in again, will be uninhabitable. There's going to be a lot of wrangling that goes on here. So whether it be the aftermath of Fiona, the required supports and cleanup and uh, leadership from different levels of government, or any topic of your choosing, we welcome that call right after this break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so there's a little bit of confusion out there about some of the numbers and addresses that we've been talking about this morning. So let's see if we can get this straight. So Freightway Transportation, they're located at 27 Duffy Place, not at Pippi Place, around Duffy Place, number 27. There's a big 53-foot trailer parked right outside. And also the number to call if you want to speak with Dave Andrews, who called the program a little bit earlier. His number is 690 so Dave's number is 690-4920, and they're, of course, located at 27 Duffy Place. Then the other outlet is, I can't pronounce the first name, but it's a fisheries business, and they're located at 1121 Kenmount Road. The other number that Dave gave out is Susan Anthony's number. If you want to contact her, even if it's you're trying to get some of your donations picked up because you're unable to get to Duffy Place, see what Susan can do to sort you out. And her number is 693 693- 7142. So I know there's a lot of info kicking around, business locations and addresses and numbers and email addresses. But then, of course, inevitably, people were going to reach out and ask for more information to connect with Judy Morrow. That's a pretty generous offer to help folks in the impacted regions. And there's so many communities. Why we didn't focus in on just, for instance, Port of Basque? Because we know just how many communities were impacted by Fiona. So Miss Morrow is at Morrow, Morrow and Crosby Law Offices. And it's probably easy enough just to give her a call. They do have a toll-free number at 1-888-786-9207. I also have her email address here for folks who are so inclined to use that particular mode of communication. And it's an easy one, easy enough. It's Judy Morrow at nf.aibn.com. So I have it on hand if you want to zip me over an email or what have you. I'll try to provide the information as we have it coming in. And in conversation with uh, Seamus O'Regan, of course, the Minister of Labor, and this is about some of the issues, whether it be wage hikes not keeping up with inflation or the consumer price index and what that means to leading to record high job vacancies. We've arrived at a bit of a perfect storm here. But one of the questions I asked them, and someone's looking for clarification, was just how many companies availed of the 
Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. And as opposed to that money flowing to their employees to keep as many people as they possibly could on staff and fully paid, was used for other reasons. Some companies, for the first time in their history, created a stock dividend. Some expanded their dividends. Some used it for stock buybacks, exactly what it was not intended for. Now, very much like the CERB, there was not maybe the required oversight and monitoring. And a lot of people applied for CERB and were technically ineligible, and they've been uh, forced to be uh, paying the money back. Okay. But not really the same approach taken in these businesses. And that's where I think we've got ourselves a little bit uh, fooled up here. It's a bit convoluted in my mind. So the small guy uh, having to pay back this money, whether it be they were on social assistance or were self-employed or what have you, and the different provinces had uh, taken different tax to get money back. But no such inc inclination for the business. You know, support for businesses, of course, crucially, you know, whether it be for expansion and enhanced tax base and investment in their climate change policies and what Okay. But far too often, far too often, money that goes directly to corporations ends up used for exactly that, buying back stock and what have you. You know, the whole concept of if they get additional government supports or tax breaks or subsidies or what have you, that it would be so-called trickle down to their employees. Sometimes it does. Absolutely right. There are some companies that's exactly how they use the money. But for others, unfortunately, no, it hasn't been the case. Whether it ends up in executive bonuses or what have you, it's just not what it's intended for. So the big question will be, what is government willing to do about it? And by the sounds of it, not much. Not much. It was easy enough to, whether it be claw back someone's social insurance check or other m modes of reclaiming the money through Canada Revenue Agency, one thing and easy enough to deal with the individual, not so much with the big companies. And there was an awful lot of money, like I s made this one of the specifics in that question to the minister, is the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. It's an easy one to pick on because, you know, the home of the muckety-muck is, I think, an important focus. So they said at their AGM, and this was last year, that they were reporting, a recording, pardon me, a, a $1 million surplus. And, of course, the questions from the floors, how did we arrive at that? Now, golf boomed during the pandemic. It did. Golf did fine. But they said, and this was the treasurer uh, at the golf club, says, well, it's because of the wage subsidy. Again, that million dollars should flow directly back to the government because that's not what it was for. It was not supposed to be a profitability issue. It was supposed to be a focus on worker issue and worker supports. So that's the ins and outs of that particular question and the origin of it when I asked it of the minister this morning. So we neglected to mention when we talk about supports for the West Coast as well is that Western Health is putting together a team and how we're, that's going to work, how people will be able to avail of it. We're going to find out a bit more with the Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Tom Osborne. Uh, and Fonz just whispered in my ear or my headphones that the, the minister is now in the queue. So we're going to try to get the information required for folks who need some help from Western Health with the minister right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the uh, Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Uh, thanks, Patty, um, and thanks for the opportunity. I wanted to provide some information. So I've got a number of telephone numbers. Um, we'll give some folks an opportunity to, to grab a pen or paper um, to 
uh, access services uh, on the west coast uh, in response to Fiona. Uh, but first of all, while, while folks are, are grabbing the pen and paper, want to extend um, my thanks and gratitude to everybody involved in the response, um, particularly Western Health, uh, for the incredible work that they've done over the weekend uh, during this difficult time. Uh, as well, justice and public safety, transportation and infrastructure. Uh, there was a, you know, a, a huge response to the needs on the West Coast. Um, also want to provide the information that all scheduled appointments uh, provided by Western Health on the South Coast will proceed this week if you're able to make those. If you're not able to make those, uh, you can reschedule. So I'll start with, with some of those numbers. If you have uh, questions or concerns about your appointment, you can call the Western Health Fiona Response Line, and that is 1-833-920-0096. And that's available from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. As for clarity, that was uh, questions about your appointment, whether it's going ahead or you need to reschedule. That's the... That's the line, yep. Okay. So you, you can contact that line if you have an appointment. Um, as well, the uh, Western Health has a team on the ground to meet the needs of residents, um, you know, particularly mental health supports and, and access to other health services such as medication, home support, um, or special equipment if you've been impacted. Uh, so that number... Again, uh, is the same as the number I just gave. I'll repeat that: one eight three three nine two zero 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 nine six. Also, you know, it, it is normal, Patty. I, there's a number of uh, mental health and, and wellness uh, contact information that I'll provide because it is normal for residents to experience. Um, anxiety, emotional and, and physical responses uh, following such a traumatic event. So anybody who is requiring support, uh, we do encourage them to reach out to any of the available mental health supports. And the easiest one is the 811 health line. Um, so that, that is available. There's also a mental health and addictions office. And the number for that is 695 6250. Uh, there is a provincial LifeWise warm line, um, and that's uh, there, there are trained peer support workers there from 9 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. That number is 1 We have bridged the gap which is quite simply nl.bridgethegap.ca. Uh, there's also the, the Provincial Mental Health and Addiction Systems Navigator, um, and that's one eight seven seven nine 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 seven five eight nine. Wellness Together Canada is a federal uh, site that's available, and, and that's one eight six six five eight five. 0445 or the crisis text line and it's quite simply text wellness to 741741 so any of these contacts are available uh, to anybody requesting or needing support 
whether it's medication, uh, equipment to help with their their health needs, um, or mental health or addictions supports. Is Bridge the Gap, if I remember correctly, is there two P's in Gap? Uh, there is, yes. Okay. Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up. Absolutely. So it's uh, nl.bridgethegap with two p's.ca. You never know how widespread the needs will be, you know, your physical and or mental health, because the anguish, I would imagine, in communities that are impacted is obvious and is measurable and it's very, very real. But I would suggest, you know, that, uh, Minister Osborne, that maybe some of these additional supports, and I know there's crisis lines, the Wellness Together is really quite helpful, and they're there 24-7. I was sitting as far away from Port Basque as anyone could be here in this province, living in the east end of St. John's, and I found the images absolutely terrifying. So... I guess the focus is going to need to be right around the province. Of course, Western Health on the ground in that regional health authority, that's an important piece uh, of offering too. So, folks, if you feel like you need some additional help or you find yourself in crisis or you're just trying to navigate what you witnessed over the weekend, don't hesitate. You know, don't try to self-manage it if you don't think you're capable. Get whatever supports are out there. Take advantage of them. Uh, we talked last week about 811 and ramping up service and uh, adding additional staff so that it was... It was an opportunity for people to actually speak with someone and get a call back in a timely fashion. Are we making any headway? We are. We are going to be adding additional nurse practitioners and, uh, you know, having 811 staff up so that the response times are faster. Um, we found that, you know, the the demand for 811 has been increasing, uh, and that is a, a number of factors, Patty. You know, folks becoming more aware of the service, uh, becoming more comfortable on, on relying on the service, and some individuals who are left without uh, a primary care provider are utilizing 811. So, based on the demand, we will be, you know, ensuring that the the resources are within 811 to be able to respond. Pardon me. You spoke with the vet coffee uh, earlier on the program this morning, and we talked about the offer. So, retention bonus, three thousand dollars signing bonus for casual nurses to take up a full-time permanent position, bursaries for students, mental health supports. Talk about childcare support, and so many nurses. Since I talked about this story last week, and after we spoke with Ms. Coffey, said it's simply not enough. They point the finger at the workplace. They point the finger at the management. So, it's one thing for financial incentives, and that always will be part of the conversation. But if the burnout has a lot to do with how they're managed, what's next steps on behalf of the minister? No, you're absolutely correct, Patty. And, and you know, this is, you know, the, the uh, retention incentives that were put in place are part of the picture, but only part of the picture. We do have to look at, uh, you know, workplace issues. And, you know, I am uh, focused uh, on looking at those and trying to correct those. One of the things that we are focused on, and you know, we will be, uh, we've been in discussion with the RNU, uh, the College of uh, Registered Nurses and other stakeholders on recruitment initiatives that, uh, you know, we are working on. Uh, and, you know, we look to all of our stakeholders as partners in that. Uh, we will be putting a heavy focus. We have been putting a heavy focus on on recruitment, but you know there are specific issues that we are or uh, uh, specific uh, items we're about to roll out in terms of uh, increased um, uh, recruitment. We need to get more healthcare professionals 
to help those who are in the system carry the load because those that are in the system have been carrying a, a heavy load. They need people side by side with them to help carry that load. That is part of it. Um, you know, as I said, the the retention uh, initiatives are part. Getting more health professionals in the system is part of uh, the equation. Workplace issues is part of the equation, and we need to to be focused on all of those. I don't know if we broached it when we spoke last week, but do you and your fellow ministers of health across the country talk about national standards, a bit more cooperation versus the combative nature of fields like now with one province has one set of rules for licensing, one province has one set of incentives they're willing to, even when we talk about medical school or to attract a healthcare professional, because dog-eat-dog is kind of hurting us all, and it puts provinces in a really difficult spot trying to come up with matching the types of incentives, matching the supports, because... It's different than living in Surrey than it is to live in Springdale. So do you guys talk about national standardizing uh, of licenses and, and other things? Because right now we're, we're infighting in a confederation. We are, and, you know, t we were to a certain degree within the province as well. You know, we, we uh, took those barriers down in terms of borders between the health authorities. If a physician from Labrador wanted to you know, spend time in Bonavista, uh, they had to go through a whole, you know, uh, exercise of, of submitting paperwork and so on, which was absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, we've we've eliminated those barriers uh, over the summer months, uh, continue uh, making it easier within the province. Uh, but within the, the country, there is a focus on, uh, you know, having the mobility between jurisdictions. We've been talking about that, but also, you know, what some refer to as a race to the bottom, you know, c uh, competing uh, incentive uh, and, and you know, signing bonus-wise, you know, just continuously competing with each other. Um, the reality is, you know, that that's a little more difficult to eliminate because every Globally, there's a shortage of healthcare workers, and and certainly within Canada, every jurisdiction is competing for those healthcare workers. But those talks are happening on on how we uh, reduce and eliminate some of those challenges. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, the the national issue, look, of course, the feds will say, and they're not wrong, is that health is a provincial matter. Of course, their role would be not only with healthcare transfer dollars, but there's a time for admitting that the system just doesn't work the way it's intended in the country. It doesn't mean that there's bad people. It just means that the system is just overwhelmed. So the issue with different standards for licensing and all the other things that we try to factor into the conversation really requires some national leadership. For instance, I know some people think that there's something up with the health accord, even though to plan for a reasonable, as seamless as possible transition to what healthcare should look like, the way it's going to work better, we hope, for all, because that's the goal, there needs to be a national health accord uh, process unfold. We really do need to do something about this. If it was simply about money, then we'd have uh, no problems at all in the healthcare, healthcare system, but we do. And the spend is enormous. Uh, let's take a break. Today's a good time to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back.
Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So we, we re- reiterated the address and the phone number for Dave Andrews and Freightway Transportation at 27 Duffy Place. But also I want to say a big thanks to the folks. I said I couldn't pronounce the first name of the Fisheries Corporation. I couldn't until I just heard from the GM, Joel Hickey. It's Kikataluk. Kikataluk Fisheries, and they're at one, or pardon me, 1121 Kemau Road in Paradise, just past Robin's Donuts. So it's the th- same things that you can donate uh, to Freightway. You can do the exact same thing for the good folks at Kikataluk uh, Fisheries Corporation at 1121 Kemau Road in Paradise, just past Robin's Donuts. All right, good stuff. Uh, let's keep going here. Line number one, Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for talking, taking my call. No problem. I wish to express my condolences to the family in Port of Bass who lost their loved one during this storm there on, on the weekend. It's a shocking, shocking uh, sight to see on TV. Again, I offer my prayers and condolences to the families and all the people that have lost their property, etc. The other point I'd like to make, well, I think we have a new... Um, elected uh, uh, PC party leader. I can't pronounce his last name. Pierre Polyvier or something? It's Pierre Polyev. Polyev, yes. Uh, I noticed, uh, I see a write-up there recently. Uh, he was, uh, I think he had his picture taken with when they had the uh, truckers uh, protest in Ottawa. Uh, he, I think he was very supportive of them. And I think we all know the uh, the, the, the the problems and the hazards that uh, this uh, protest uh, cause to the to the people who lived in that area. So I guess my question is, uh, uh, do we need a person such as him, or Mr. Polivier or whatever his name is, uh, yeah, yeah. To, because those people were very radical, actually, it seems like. Well, well, some of them were. I mean, and that's, I think, the problem with how we describe one gathering or another is that some of them were absolutely radical. Some of them were just there because they were frustrated. Some of them were there solely about the mandate. Some of them were there for other issues. So yeah, I try to hesitate saying that everyone had the exact same motivation to be right. there. And he well, did well, offer them some yeah. support. Yeah, that's true. Right. And the Truckers Association did not support that protest. No, they didn't. Only Well, they estimate that about... Uh, Maybe between 5 and 6% of truckers were involved in any of the blockades uh, on the border and or were involved in Ottawa. So the vast majority of truckers were trucking. Uh, yes, like I said, it did cause a lot of problems. And obviously you know, the, the, the leaders of, the, of that pr- protest, I understand, are still waiting court. Uh, the, the, I think they're day in court, obviously. Uh, so, I just, so I just want... So obviously then uh, I, I think that would be a bit... Uh, a bit uh, concerned about supporting a leader such as that, as Mr. Poivier. Anyway, that's my comment on, on that issue. And again, I thank you for taking my call. No problem. Bye now. Okay, bye, Vic. There's, you know, I, I read an interesting post actually from Mr. Poliev uh, earlier today. So he took a lot of heat for being in a photograph with this guy, his, what's his name, Jeremy Douglas, I think it is. And this guy's absolutely a radical person. No question about it. But then that same guy, was that his name? Is it Jeremy Douglas? I wish I could find uh, Polyev's tweet here right at this very moment. Because, you know, if you just find yourself in a photograph with someone, doesn't necessarily mean that you subscribe to that person's uh, leanings or ideology or utterances. Now, 
You have to be cautious as a political figure about the type of people that you draw as supporters. That's just nature of the beast as well. So, you know, coming at him full hog or hog wild because he was in a photo with someone is probably the strange way to approach why someone who is like this Jeremy fella would be attracted to Jeremy McKenzie is his name. Absolutely right. Thank you for that, Fonz. But then Mr. McKenzie and one of his loathsome buddies, they were talking about sexually assaulting Polyev's wife. And, of course... I mean, none of us can stand for that. It's what has happened to lead people to be willing to say these things out loud is beyond me. Absolutely beyond me. So, Polyev is a lightning rod. He is. Some of it's on purpose. You know, so there will be time to ask him important questions, but it'll be time, I think, uh, shortly for Mr. Polyev to be willing to want to answer some more important questions. Yes. Everything doing uh, associated with affordability and cost of living, you know, people need to have real plans. We can all easily say out loud that it is, uh, it's a problem because it is a problem, right? It's just the reality for so many people as they look into their wallet or check their bank account and see the bills piling up in their mailbox and trying to struggle to make ends meet. But we really need some more serious discussion about things like inflation, I don't pretend to have a high level under, of understanding to deal with the completes of the ins and the outs of inflation. But there's lots of contributing factors, if we're going to look around and be honest with ourselves. Is some of it based on the amount of money flowing from the federal government into the uh, economy? Plays a role. You know, the concept that the inflation package announced there a couple of weeks ago, which is valued about $3 billion, that was about dental care and a one-time $500 for the Canada housing benefit recipients and a bump in the GST. And, you know, the immediate comment was that money going into the hands of people further exacerbates an already standing problem with inflation. Does it? I don't know. But if $3 billion into an annual GDP, which is in excess of $1.6 trillion American dollars, then I don't know. Do we exaggerate it to make political points, or are we actually getting a real understanding of where we are, how we got here, and how we get out of here? To that end, and, of course, this was organized well before there was uh, a firm understanding of how bad Fiona would be. There's a well-known, notable, and I think highly respected economist and professor at the University of Calgary named Trevor Tome. He does very level-headed work, and you know, sometimes you can read an economist's opinion and know quite clearly their political bent. I don't find Tome to be that way, which is why we asked him to come on the program, to help us understand exactly where we are, where we're going, how we're going to get there. And what the implication might be for affordability issues and inflation, with whether it's that plan announced by the federal government a couple of weeks ago, whether it be the impact of carbon tax and what that means for affordability-related issues, where some of the exemptions are, and what the reality is facing Canadians, especially those on the federal scheme, which is, I think, four of the ten provinces. Everyone else negotiated their own bilateral agreement with the federal government. And a quick note, and I'll say it again on this front, you really, really need to cross our fingers and hope that the agreement that was once struck by then-Premier Ball regarding the carbon tax and the exemption for home heating fuels, that has to stay in place. That is just so critically important. We can do things about carpooling and driving less or changing the type of vehicles we, uh, we buy and the vehicles we drive, all those types of things. There are some behavioral issues associated with driving. But no adjustments can be made necessarily. You know, you can upgrade your installation. You can install a mini split or a heat pump. And there's some subsidies from the various levels of government for that stuff. But people need to heat their home. 
So if we do indeed add any additional monies to what's already pretty expensive, no matter how you heat your home, whatever type of home heating fuel you use, ay ay ay. So we need to see that exemption live on. Okay, let's go and take a break for the news. When we come back, you know the deal. The topic, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the president of St. John's Junior Hockey League. That's Jim Hare. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yeah, Patty, thank you very much. I mean, first of all, we'd, we'd like to extend our thoughts and prayers to all those people in the Port of Ash, Port of Ash area who got hit so bad the other day, and certainly to all the ones in the Maritimes, Nova Scotia, the Brunswick, and PEI, who took the brunt of the storm anyway. But the, the big reason for the call is the next two weekends that we play hockey on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at different rinks, uh, ourselves, the executive, along with all eight teams of the St. John's Junior Hockey League, will be setting up a collection area when you go into, into the games where you're we're asking for non-perishables, clothing, which is also needed. We'll take and and we'll take cash too if people want to do that. Because they have a, a setup now where you can deposit that for their for, to a fund for uh, Port of Ash. So, whatever the people can do out there, the St. John's Junior Hockey League are more than willing to help out. How are you going to get the goods to the people who need them, Jim? What's the plan? Uh, well, that's we'll deal with that one when when it comes across, Patty. But I, I suspect it wouldn't be too hard to get somebody, maybe a transport truck or something, to to take and deliver. You know, they're heading that way. I'm, that's, let's get the stuff first, and then we'll worry how we get it there. You know, but we'll, we, we will get it there, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I, I was just curious if you had something set up, because if not, and it sounds like we're going to tackle that after we get the goods, maybe we can help you out, because we've dealt with a bunch of different trucking companies here to get different things distributed in different parts of the island. So let me know if I can help. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think there's somewhere in town now. Uh, I was just talking to my wife there a short while ago with, uh, that are accepting uh, clothing, particularly winter clothing, if... Uh, People lost everything with the winter, winter season not too far away. So uh, when I talk to those people I might, later on today, I might find out what their uh, sources are for getting them over to Port of Asia. Well, there's two different ones. Well, Freightway Transportation at 27 Duffy Place, they're collecting, trying to fill a 53-foot trailer. Apparently, they've been pretty busy over there this morning. So that's the good news. Yeah, that's and that's the one to Duffy Place. That's where actually going to drop off some personal stuff there today. But well, I'll be talking to them, and if they can accommodate others, you know, after the next two weekends and Hopefully we'll have enough to, to fill a truck, you know, and I'm sure everybody who comes into junior game can sympathize with uh, what they've gone through over there. I mean, it's unreal. We, we just, it's hard to imagine. It is. It's absolutely hard to imagine. But, uh, you know, the province does a good job of rallying around communities and individuals or families that are in need, and I think the same thing is happening here, and thankfully so. And it's not going to be... It's not going to be simple, and it's not going to be easy, and it's not just going to be one day of donations that are going to see people through here. This is going to be a sustained effort because the damage and the devastation is just unimaginable. It really is. And like I've said many times this morning, here I am in the east end of town, and I was I was terrified for people to see a home. There it is. Next thing, it's gone because of the force of a sea surge and a wave. It's just remarkable stuff. So good on the eight teams in the St. John's Junior Hockey League and the league as an organization for collecting the goods, and we'll get it out to the folks impacted the best way we can. Yeah, as, as, Patty, if you would, or if you could, I'm sure you'll say, well, as, as we get closer to our weekend, just remind people again that we will be collecting items and uh, – I expect we're going to get a good load because I know the people who come to watch these games are all good people and uh, and I'm sure they'll help out their fellow Newfoundlanders in the best way they can. Yeah, send me a reminder email, Jimmy, and I'll put it out there. Uh, that I will do, Patty. Thank you for the time here today. Pleasure. Take good care. 
Okay, you do, buddy. Right, Take bye-bye. care. Bye. You know, you're going to see various organizations uh, step up and do things like that, which is going to be obviously very, really helpful. So if you've got, whether it's your business or your community group or your service group that are trying to organize some of these collections, uh, we're happy to spread the word because this is going to be a concerted effort required for people province-wide, nationwide. I mean, again, five out of ten provinces were impacted by the storm. So getting more information, so uh, easy enough for me to say Freightway Transportation at 27 Duffy Place, but let me try this one more time. And this is the Fisheries Organization. Kekak Taluk. Kekak Taluk? I think, I, I'm, I think I'm getting closer. But they're, of course, at 1121 on Kenmount Road in Paradise, just past Robin's Donuts. They're going to be around all day collecting your donations as well. So Kekak Taluk. Kekak Taluk. Boy, trying my best. And okay, there we go. Uh, so I just got another email from a trucking company also stepping up to the plate, and we've spoken with this gentleman in the very recent past. That's Chris Howlett at Akita Equipment. They're planning one on Thursday for drop-off at their location at Paddy's Pond, and the truck will be in the port the very next day. So bravo to folks at Akita Equipment. You're going to see these companies do a lot because, you know, especially if you're just focusing on Port of Basque alone. Every single one of these trucking companies, they deal with the community of Port of Basque on a regular daily basis. So they'll, of course, be quick to try to help out. So good on Chris Howlett at Akita Equipment, Dave Andrews at Freightway Transportation, and Joel, I'll make sure I get Joel's name, Joel, Joel Hickey at uh, Kikaktaluk Fisheries Corporation on Kemont Road. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Laura, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well. How about you? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Patty, uh, my reason for the call this morning is uh, I chaired a hospital foundation here in Stephenville. Mm -hmm. And uh, first of all, uh, I want to say, give my uh, sympathies to the family of the woman that was uh, lost in the disaster. And uh, also to all the people that, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with that family. And of course, uh, and a thank you to all the people that helped to, uh, you know, find her body, because that's a, a very important thing in a case like that, to have closure. And uh, we want to we thank them for all their efforts. And, of course, all the people in the community that have been reaching out. And here in Stephenville, we have the Lions Club crowded this morning with uh, volunteers and uh, people dropping off clothes and other items for the people in Port of Basque. And um, that's, that's, uh, that's a way of showing, you know, uh, how communities get support from one another, and that's how we all get through these things that happen unexpectedly, you know? Absolutely. You know, we're good people, and when push comes to shove, people realize just how important it is because I can't get over what I saw, and I don't even think any of us have really done the math on just how many people have had their lives turned upside down, and some of it forevermore. So let's keep doing what we can. It's going to be a, a big effort throughout the week and the month. And federal and provincial supports, of course, municipalities play their own role, as will private sector. So let's see what we can do. Yes. And, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, uh, when things like, like when we had the flood in 2005, we, we uh, had 123 homes were affected. And it was, uh, we know what devastation that took place at that particular time. So it, it's, it, it brings it home, you know, Patty. So we're lucky here in Stephenville that we didn't have any major damage, thank God. So I just want to let people know that the Radiothon, which is being held on the 28th, which is Wednesday, and you, what happens, we share the time 
LeGrow Health Center and, and Sir Thomas Roddick, we share the time between the two. Okay. So uh, normally uh, LeGrow Health Center would be on in the morning. We would be on in the afternoon. So I want to say that uh, both radiothons are canceled, and we certainly, uh, you know, will plan it for a different time. And uh, we wish all the best to all the people in Portobasque and the surrounding areas. And if there's anything that we can do as a town, we certainly will help out. Appreciate this this morning. Laura, any idea when you're going to reschedule? Or are you just going to leave it for no, now? No, uh, we don't yet. Uh, I was talking to the OCM uh, representative this morning, and she said that uh, in the event that the other, uh, the LeGro cancels altogether, we would still be given a time later on uh, before the, the, the end of the year to have ours. Uh, stay in touch. When we can help uh, broadcast it or promote it, we're happy to do it. Okay, then. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, bye-bye now. It's Laura Aylward, of course, with the the group supporting those two healthcare facilities in the town of Stephenville. Uh, just one more opportunity for folks who want to maybe drop off something. We've got a bunch of the information that we've shared with St. John's of Paradise. But also, uh, let's see here, St. David's Anglican Church, Pasadena, at 11 Daw Place. They're going to be accepting donations to bring to Porto Bass this week at the following time. So tomorrow afternoon, Tuesday, from 1.30 to 4.30, on Wednesday from 10 to 5.00. Uh, for more information, you can call Colleen at 639-2111. And they've got a very similar list of uh, donations that they're looking for. Ladies, fall jackets and PJs and tops and leggings and hoodies, all sorts of female clothing, men's clothing, children's clothing. They're also accepting uh, bottled water, non-perishable food items, baby food, toiletries, blankets, pillows. So at St. David's Anglican Church in Pasadena at 11 Daw Place, Tuesday, 1.30 to 4.30, Wednesday, 10 to 5. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to get an update from one of the municipal leaders doing their level best to see their community through the devastation left behind by Fiona. That's Brian Button. He's the mayor of Port of Basque. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning to the mayor of Port of Basque. That's Brian Button. Mayor Button, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty, and uh, good morning to everybody. Uh, first of all, Patty, I'd like to just start by... Uh, uh, sending our deepest condolences and sympathies out to the family who lost a loved one during this horrific storm. Uh, fortunately, yesterday there there was a recovery, and uh, I'm, think, I'm sure that uh, gives a, uh, a little bit of closure for the family, but I want them to know on behalf of all of us, we are certainly thinking about them, and we want to pass along our sympathies to them. And we feel the exact same way here uh, this morning, Mayor Button. It's just absolutely devastating. It's heartbreaking to see what's happened in your community and surrounding area. Before we go any further, people will be looking to municipal leaders, including yourself, for guidance and support. And I'm sure you're inundated with those kinds of requests for your time and leadership. But how are you personally? Uh, it's been a it's been an emotional roller coaster. There's no doubt uh, having to go around and hearing stories and, and seeing the devastation. You know, I, I'm not only the mayor of this community, I grew up in this community, and as I keep telling all the national news agencies, you know, we're a small community of 4,000 people. Everybody knows everybody. And uh, their lives are, are lives that you've known about. And to see their lives turned upside down, it affects you in ways that you can't even imagine. And uh, that's 
that's what we're going through as as a mayor of of these of our communities and as people volunteers you know we're volunteers and uh we're trying our best to to keep this all together uh fortunately now we're you know we're moving to that stage now where we have uh, a lot of help coming in and a lot of things coming our way but from a personal standpoint it's it has been a, a real roller coaster of emotions i can tell you that so where are we this morning well, today, as uh, you know, we're we're getting some people here on the ground now. Uh, some government officials, uh, our MP, uh, uh, good Minister Hutchings, have, uh, have arrived with uh, you know her staff. Uh, we've had uh, engineering uh, parts of things from the province that are starting to arrive. Uh, we found out now last uh, evening the province had requested an FRA, and it's been signed off by the federal government now to get some military assistance into our community as well uh, that we're going to need for various things. Uh, we started this morning, we started a rollout of uh, uh, contracting companies that we have in the area to, to go out and some places where we need to, to push houses off roads, uh, you know, structures off roads where we need to be able to get in there to be able to do things. Uh, we've still deemed certain areas as unsafe. Um, and, uh, you know, not sending people back. And I can explain a little more on that as we chat here. Uh, but the process now is it's, it's I, I guess, what I have to say to our residents in our community uh, to get a, an understanding of it, this is bigger than anything that a, uh, this municipality can handle. And uh, the magnitude of this storm is so widespread throughout our community uh, that this is going to take time. There's so many pieces and so many moving pieces of it that, you know, it's uh, it's, it's it's just we've got to take our time and do one step at a time because we're still trying to protect public safety. And uh, so as we go along in that, I, the, I know people are probably, you know, the, and I can understand it. I can feel the anxiety. So people's patience level is probably to the max. And uh, but at this time, we all have to to pull together, like I'll give you an example of some areas that we have safe or are deemed not safe. There's structural damage and homes collapsed and homes on the streets. Now on the other side of the street, the homes are okay. Like they're, you know, they probably may have flooding in them and things like that, but the structures are okay. But in those particular properties, there's no power. There's no, there's no water. There's no sewer. It's not safe to have people back in them. And it's not safe to have people roaming around the debris and, and everything that we have everywhere. So it's until we have the right people here on the ground that can make these decisions and, and tell us what's safe and to make sure that we organize it properly so we protect public safety, it's the reason why we're saying you can't go there. Who are those people and where are they going to come from to deem what is safe and where people can go back? So are we talking about engineers or faculty at Memorial University or the Canadian military? Who are these people? Well, they're going to be a combination of all of that, uh, Patty. It's going to be engineers. It's going to be the military. It's going to be people with the knowledge uh, that can work through this. Um, once we've determined and, and we've got all of our things, you know, we're trying to set up a, a, an actual command post now with an actual number associated with an actual person working that that's all in the process now of being set up here now. So, because as you can imagine that, 
uh, our telephones here at the town hall have been inundated with phone calls. My phone has been burning with messages that's on it, and I apologize to anybody that I haven't gotten back on the messages, even if they've been the simplest message. Uh, so we're going to have something where we can put someone in place where we can take that and direct where the things need to go and uh, where we need to get it. Uh, because, as I said, this is uh, not an overnight process. It's going to be a long process. People want to help. You know, and uh, we've been talking about different uh, organizations and efforts being made here on the east coast of the island, and I know it's going to be incremental steps, baby steps. So we're talking about donations of food and the like. But how are people who have been displaced even being housed? Can you paint a picture for us? Well, I guess if there's one plus side about living in a small rural community is there's a lot of family, a lot of friends and things like that. So there are a lot of people that are with family now, with friends now. Uh, we do have an evacuation center that we had set up in the St. James Regional High School. We had people housed in that last night. We were able to take people out of that and to put in the local hotels here to, to get a little more comfortable. Um, you know, it's been spread out. Some people we've been able to send back and get back to their homes because we've deemed that that is okay for them to do so. It's safe to do so. And they have, uh, you know, we've had the power restored and those type things in that area. Um, but for the other people right now, it's going to be looking at uh, what we have. That's another piece of this puzzle that now we have to figure out where are these people going. Some people have lost everything that they own, everything. The only thing they lift with was the clothes on their back. And that's all we have. There's nothing to go back to go through to see if you can find something. There's nothing there to find. So... We need to find now, now it's going to be the process of finding where do these people go for the long term. The short term is has been handled really well. And now we're getting in the process where we need to determine and find out where do these people go for the long term. Describe the type of coordination you and other municipal leaders are uh, engaged in at this moment in time. Because, you know, you're going to focus in on your own community and you have... You know, I, w I can only imagine the activity on your telephone, but talk about the municipal uh, cooperation because it's not just in uh, Channel Port of Basque. It could be in Burnt Islands or in Burgio or what have you. So what's the type of conversation you're having with your fellow municipal leaders? We've been doing conference calls, and, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, we've been doing conference calls with the EMO Center and, and the province and uh, with all of our communities that have been affected here on the southwest coast of the island. Uh, it's not only Port of Bass, we have communities along the coast, uh, you know, Marguerite, uh, sustained damage in Island Mort, Burnt Islands, Rose Blanche, all those type of communities that have sustained uh, damage and they have things going on where, you know, we're in this uh, together. Um, uh, they've lost uh, things in their community. So we've been reaching out to each other and, and finding out and uh, the people that are here on the ground are also going to be on the ground in, in their areas. So this is a large picture that spreads from our community to other communities as well, and uh, so it's a it's a it's a big working piece. Well, you can certainly feel free to use this program and everyone here at VOCM and VOCM News when information needs to get distributed to the residents in around uh, Channel Port of Basque or anywhere else. Please do whatever you need to do to, to get us or bring us in the loop. Patty, if there's if I could take just. Uh, uh, one more minute, sure. if I could, just a couple of announcements on that so our public will know because we're taking calls on that. We still have areas in our community that we had closed, like Water Street East, Clement Crescent, Knotts Avenue, uh, over in uh, Regional Street and Lakeshore Drive. Those streets and those areas are closed because they're impassable. 
those areas that we've deemed unsafe. And until we determine and have the proper people here and that we can make some decisions on how we get people back in to do things, uh, we're, we're going to keep it remain uh, like that. Maybe as we go along here, we'll have messages out where things change. But a big one for people to know about, a real big one, is the Grand Bay West Bridge that connects the Grand Bay West area to the rest of uh, Port of Bass. That bridge is now has been deemed unsafe. It's not passable for a, by a vehicle nor pedestrians walking across the bridge. Uh, we're putting more barricades in that area. And the barricades could be done now as we speak, uh, but there are more barricades that are going in that area. So if people are thinking even that they can walk across there, uh, we're telling people not to do that. Uh, it's it's been deemed unsafe, uh, so we want to keep people out of that area. It's very important that you follow the instructions on that. We wish you good luck, and we're happy to help whenever we can. All right, thank you, Patty, for having us. Take good care. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. That's the Mayor Port of Basque, Brian Button. Oh boy. Let's see. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we still have another couple of segments to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number one and say good morning to Trevor Tome. He's a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the School of Public Policy, and he joins us on one. Good morning, Trevor. You're on the air. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Or Dr. Tom, I should say. Pardon me, sir. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, so we saw an ease of inflation rates, and of course, there were some forecasts that maybe would drop to some 7.3 from the 7.6, and of course, the record high at 8.1, and now it's at 7%. What are the biggest contributing factors to the ease and in the inflationary pressure? Well, that drop that we've seen over the past two months, as you noted, from 8.1 to 7, that, that's really driven by one factor, and that is energy prices falling from their highs that we saw back in June. So global oil prices, that affects inflation because it leads to higher costs for fuel at the pump, for home heating oil, for natural gas, and and that's a big component of consumer spending in Canada. And so when those prices fall, uh, that directly lowers the rate of inflation. That's really the full story here that we've seen over the past two months. Stats Canada refers to something called the shelter index. What does housing play, the role housing plays in the inflation rate? Well, inflation is a measure of average prices of the goods and services that we buy as consumers. And so that includes shelter, it includes rent, it includes the cost of owning a home, like mortgage interest costs, things of things of that sort. It, it also includes a measure of what Statistics Canada uh, calls homeowners replacement costs. So they try and measure how much our homes wear out from one year to the next. And so they add that in. So it's really how much we as consumers are spending, if you will, on the shelter, whether owned or rented. And that some parts of it are rising right now, like mortgage interest costs because of uh, higher interest rates, but other parts are falling, like home prices overall are leading to decreases in what we measure that depreciation rate to be. And even the price of homes, they've only really come back to worth to where they were like 12, 18 months ago. So it's not like the bottom has fallen out of the real estate market. It's not a bubble bursting or anything. 
Yeah, and it really does depend on what market you're in, sure. too. So there's been much sharper declines in Vancouver and Toronto, for example, than there have been elsewhere in the country. And so there, there really isn't – I don't think it's, it's right to think about Canada as a whole having – uh, real estate market. It's a very different experience depending on where in the country you are. Do you see this as being the trend in the, I'll call it the right direction, and it'll continue this way? Because it was, we thought uh, it would be sort of the similar thing in the United States, but not so much. Yeah, uh, so it's really hard to predict where things are going to go. And so I want to uh, put a big caveat on everything I'm about to say, but energy has been the key driver of inflation's rise uh, in recent months. And so depending on where global oil markets go, uh, that will determine where inflation goes from here. And it looks like, you know, right now, if prices stay around $80 per barrel, then inflation is going to drop pretty rapidly in the coming months. Help Um, us understand the relationship between the consumer price index and the price we pay in the grocery store. So in August, consumer price index fell, I think, 0.3 of a percent, but grocery stores gained almost 11 percent. What's the relationship between the two? Because it's hard to square that circle, the ease in the inflation rate, some of the affordability issues, but price of food, for instance, skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. So the consumer price index that we measure is an average across hundreds of products that Statistics Canada measures every month, and sometimes things rise in price while other things fall in price. You know, cell phone costs, for example, on average, have been declining over the past year. But you're right to note that food prices have been increasing, and they've been increasing at a pretty rapid pace. You know, now some of that is because of energy costs uh, over the past year rising. So food is a kind of an energy-intensive item, both to ship it uh, to stores, to produce it in the first place, to heat the grocery stores uh, or, or cool them, depending on the time of year. So when energy prices rise, that does tend to affect food prices as well. So whether we start to see food prices start to ease because of lower energy prices recently, that'll be something to watch. And then there's also weather. Um, you know, when there are droughts, for example, as there were last year, affecting harvests in important producing regions like Saskatchewan, then that's going to have an effect on prices as well. How should people view the relationship between Canada's inflation rate and the United States and the U.S. Fed, Federal Reserve and what they do? Because, of course, we're our own sovereign nations, but they're our largest ally and trading partner. So how do you view the marriage between the two? Well, some of what happens in the United States will directly affect us in Canada because we import a significant amount from the U.S. They are, as you noted, our largest trading partner, and uh, roughly one-third of Canada's economy is tied to international trade. And so when prices of goods and services in the United States change, that will affect the, the prices that we pay if we import from them. Uh, changes in in interest rates, like the Federal Reserve in the U.S. changing interest rates, that also affects the exchange rate between Canada and the United States. And that can also affect inflation because when the dollar goes up, that makes imports cheaper. And when the dollar goes down, the reverse is true. And then I guess third is we're both, Canada and the U.S., exposed to very similar external developments like the global price of energy rising and falling that's a key driver of inflation in the u.s as it is in canada 
What role does the federal government spending play? Because, you know, the talk about inflation has become very much politicized. We all know the comments mm -hmm. we hear about just inflation, what have you. But what real role did the federal government pandemic supports play in the inflation rate before we get to the Bank of Canada and their maneuvers? So that's going to be a question that researchers look at, I think, for years to come. Because in principle, uh, when government spending rises, that can increase the demand for goods and services, either because the government itself is buying up uh, those goods and services or because they're increasing the disposable income of, of individuals. So in Canada, it creates the CERB, for example, that increases incomes of individual Canadians that can then take that and and use it to purchase goods and services. And when demand rises, then prices tend to rise as well. And so it's entirely possible that some part of the increase in inflation is due to that factor. Some recent research actually by myself and a colleague, Sonia Chen, here at the University of Calgary, we find that the increase in demand overall while it accounts for some of the initial increases in inflation as we came out of the pandemic there in 2021, uh, it doesn't account for much of the recent acceleration, which is really a supply-side story tied to energy prices. So I think the answer is a little nuanced there. The federal government uh, spending may uh, be somewhat of a factor, but it is not the key driver, especially of recent increases in the rate of inflation. There's a bit of a perfect storm brewing there here, though, isn't it? You know, over the last six months, uh, the Bank of Canada hiked its policy rate by about 300 basis points. Then you have the mortgage mm. stress test and the housing affordability issues and energy affordability issues. So when the bank, you know, way, uh, way above its 2% target, but getting back to two, how cautious should the Bank of Canada be, in your personal opinion? Because affordability, you know, we all have debt to service. The consumer debt load across mm -hmm. the country is extraordinary. So it might feel good for the Bank of Canada to play their role, but it just might mean additional economic pressures on Canadians. So the bank is really in a difficult situation because they are mandated to achieve inflation that is low and stable between one to three percent and they basically have one tool to do it and that's uh, affecting interest rates and so when we increase interest rates that will as you noted uh, really squeeze those who have borrowed and now they will see borrowing costs rise either with um, mortgage rates rising when they renew or perhaps someone has a variable rate mortgage and they see their interest rate rise right away. Uh, credit card debt, uh, for example, potentially as well. And so that's that's certainly a source of, of pain for them. And that will lead to lower spending on goods and services. And that lower spending means lower demand, which means lower prices. That's the that's the idea. Uh, certainly not costless, no question about it, but inflation itself is a key source of cost and economic pressure on, on individuals as well. And so I think that there's no easy way out uh, of our current situation to lower interest, uh, sorry, lower inflation rates. And the bank is hoping that this period of high rates uh, doesn't need to last too long. And I think that will uh, depend on what happens to energy prices in particular going forward. 
People were quick to mock the federal government with their inflation package they announced, you know, one-time benefit and the, ca- the Canada housing benefit and the GST bump and dental plan, mm-hmm. I think value somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 billion. The comment was that that immediately makes things worse on the inflation front. But when the country's annual GDP is in excess of $1.6 or $7 trillion American dollars, what impact does that most recent inflation package have, if at all? Well, you're right to compare the size of the recent package to Canada's overall economy. So the GST credit, for example, uh, increasing that pretty significantly is equivalent to only about 0.1% of Canada's overall economy. And so it's not itself large enough to have a meaningful or even, I suspect, measurable effect on inflation overall. I think the second thing to keep in mind is not just its size, but who receives it. And so this credit is really only for individuals who have lower levels of income. And inflation has been a particularly intense burden on those individuals because they tend to spend a much higher fraction of their income, saving very little, and on average actually taking on uh, debt uh, over the past few months to handle the rising prices. And so this GST credit... I suspect much of it will be used just to offset some of the borrowing that those individuals have done rather than it being spent on new uh, goods and services. And so if, if, if that's the case, if this boost credit goes towards lowering debt uh, or saving of those individuals, then it won't be a source of inflation pressure. Yeah, and by and large, low and middle income or, or income uh, people, they spend where they live, you know, as opposed to spend out of country or what have you. And that GST bump impacts, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 million Canadians. So it remains to be seen what that is. Let's talk about global supply chain, because, of course, again, it's a political leaning conversation. It's about uh, Justin Trudeau or it's about the Bank of Canada. It's about Tiff Macklem or it's about the war in Ukraine. We know that the mm-hmm. global supply chains have been fractured. There's a lot of recovery has been achieved over the last 12 months, I would suggest. But what do we need to know about that impact on our inflation rate here in this country? So I think that was a big big part of the story, especially early on. And these supply chains, it might sound pretty abstract, but I like to think of it as really just literally the ports being clogged full of more goods than they normally handle, uh, or the number of trucks and rail cars available to ship those physical goods. So during the pandemic, consumers kind of shifted away from spending on services. You know, these are activities that involve a lot of Um, interpersonal contact and and switch that spending to goods. And so we had an increase in just the the raw volume of stuff that people were buying, and that did lead to port delays and shipping delays and higher costs to even get a container in the first place. And so those additional costs and time involved did increase prices because it made shipping uh, more costly for uh, the businesses involved. And I think that's that's eased quite a bit uh, recently. So it's not really something that's contributing to recent accelerations in the rate of inflation. But, but just the volume of goods rising as quickly as they did beyond the capacity of, of many uh, ports or shipping companies to deal with was was an important factor. 
the Bank of Canada and their monetary policy levers are clear. Uh, not that I understand all the ins and outs of it, but what could and should government be doing here? Because you talk about self-sufficiency and being more self-reliant and not having a full reliance on a global supply chain for so many products that we do import. So what does government do? So I think, well, what government does depends on which area of government we're talking about. So the Bank of Canada is one component of the federal government. It, it manages its day-to-day activities independently of the uh, elected officials. Uh, but it really just has the one tool, increasing interest rates. And so that's the tool that they're using right now uh, to slow economic growth and bring price pressures down as central banks around the world are are doing. And so I think that's that's appropriate uh, because that is their their mandate and that is their tool. Uh, the federal government can respond in ways that we have been seeing, you know, supporting tar- with targeted measures uh, individuals who are feeling particularly intense strain from higher prices. Uh, so that's income support programs like the GST credit. The feds can also, if they want, you know, pursue policies that might have a direct effect on prices. So various proposals have been made, for example, dropping tariffs on imported products that can lower prices because it's a a tax on a good that we purchase from uh, abroad. Others have called on the Fed to lower taxes on gasoline, uh, for example. I I don't tend to favor that approach, but it would be something that would uh, affect uh, an important item that we buy. And uh, the government of Alberta, for example, has done that, and it has measurably lowered energy prices here. But because most of the factors contributing to rising inflation rates today are external in nature, there's there's not a lot. There's not a lot of easy tools available to the federal government to bring inflation back down to uh, a normal level. So I tend to think that monetary policy, increasing interest rates, that'll be a, a big uh, factor leading inflation to return back to normal, but it's not quick. You know, it takes time for these policies to work, about a year and a half to two years potentially for the full effect of increased interest rates to manifest themselves in the economy. So I still think we have some time to go. Yeah, and speaking of consumer debt load, curiously, with the highest wages in the country and the lowest taxes, Albertans have the highest consumer debt load, excluding mortgages in Canada, and we're second. So that's not a good position to find ourselves in. I really appreciate making time for the show this morning, Trevor. My pleasure. Anytime. Take good care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. It's Trevor Tome. He's a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Dorothy. You're on the air. Hi. I just wanted to let you know my thoughts and prayers are with the people in Portobasque and surrounding areas, and don't give up the faith. Keep your faith in God. But my problem is I have a son dying of ALS. He's paralyzed now 18 months. And provincial home care has been sending their workers out. But they just don't have enough. Now... Friend from Alberta trained Dominic's son, Dominic Fuhr. That's who's dying of ALS. And his son wants to come and work with him. 
He's fully trained now, but because he's Dominic's son, they don't want him to work with him. We're two weeks now waiting for approval. And as we sit now, we're short three workers. And here is Dominic's son, trained, ready to come in and look after him. I can't do it anymore. I fractured my back trying to move Dominic. Oh my, I'm so sorry to hear this. What's involved with the approval for someone who simply wants to come in and help? What, what needs to be done? Uh, training. Training is what's needed. But my nephew is neat. Shoot, my grandson is trained two weeks now. And they won't let him come work with his father. It has to go through the the top guys. The social workers emailed and told them the situation. They're short on workers. Michael is trained. But because he's Dominic's son, there's a lot of red tape to go through to get him to work. And so you say this has been two weeks in the making? Yes. He's sick now five years, but he's paralyzed now 19 months. And I'm two weeks trying to get him to work with his father. He's fully trained by a friend in Alberta, paid for all the training. I'm just on my pension, and Dominic has a low CPP. So this man in Alberta paid for his full training. And he's ready to work. But red tape is there, and we're waiting two weeks now for permission to have his son work with his father, to take care of him, paralyzed from the neck down, and he can't speak. I don't know what the red tape is concerned. If a son can't work with his father, provincial home care is doing the best they can. But Dominic is a special case now, being paralyzed. You need special workers. All I'm looking for is someone to speak up and help get some of this red tape cut so Michael can go to work with his father. Whose office are you dealing with? Are you dealing with the Department of Health or who are you dealing with for this approval? Eastern Health. Okay. Now, my social worker has emailed the powers to be a couple of times, but there's still no work back. No word back from them. And Provincial is willing to hire him. They're just waiting for the okay for the son to be able to look after his father. Well, uh, I, I can hear the stress in your voice, and I hope this gets solved uh, immediately. I, I do know someone who's involved in that process uh, at Eastern Health. I'll just you know zip them off a note and see if they can give me some sort of idea about when this is going to uh, happen, because you need the help. And I hope you get it right away, Dorothy. Take good care of yourself. Let's see what we can find out. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Um, All right, that's the show for today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.